Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for giving us this privilege to be gathered together as family in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for giving us this space in North Dighton, this place of peace, so that we can worship you in this way that matters so much. Father, thank you for inspiring us to press on in the face of so much adversity, increasing adversity even, uh, in a part of our own country that seems to be degrading exponentially day by day. Thank you, Father, for calling us soldiers, your soldiers, and calling us to the front line to do your good work, to spread the good news about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for his work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a, an evening like this spent together as family a reality. We just ask for blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared. This is part 30. Uh, here's where we ended on Sunday. Uh, this evening's lesson is sort of in two parts. We're in a battle for the souls of men. That came out of Evangelist Grande's mouth uh, last Tuesday. And it's a battle cry, and, I, and I'm enamored by it because it's a simple yet sobering perspective and frankly, the right place to start each and every morning. We're in a battle for the souls of men. We're not the ones who do the saving, but somehow, some way, God has seen fit to give us this commission, this incredible ability that He channels grace through us and that we're able to go out and evangelize people. Are you kidding me? People that we're going to see forever and ever in the eternal state? Is that not amazing? I get goosebumps right now. Is that not amazing? To know that you can evangelize somebody, at least partake in someone's salvation, and then spend all of eternity knowing that you were part of that. I mean, beauty is too small of a word. That beautiful thing that's, that, that happens. I mean, it's a wonderful place to start. And just... Remember that this is a perspective that we share with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we know from Luke 19.10. He says, I came to seek and save those that are lost, right? Before we get to Luke 19.10, though, I want to read that, the first part of that chapter for the sake of context. Go to Luke 19.1. Luke 19.1. So we're in a battle for the souls of men. And it's okay to, you know, to kind of get gung-ho about it. I, I, I encourage you to do it. I mean, how many things can we get gung-ho about in this world anymore? Everything we, everything I've ever gotten gung-ho about has turned out to be a turd. So <laughs> basically, I'm not going to get gung-ho about anything except the gospel anymore. Right? It always ends up a flight. I'm sorry. It just ends up being a flop. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, let's do this thing, right? And whatever, it's, you know, whatever the endeavor is. And it ends up being a flop. Turns out it's about me or it's about some other, somebody else or it's about some ridiculous idol or some 
faint or subtle version of idolatry. It's a joke. And the only thing worth doing in this life, really, besides living, obviously living as unto the Lord and bringing glory to Him that way, is to go out and evangelize people. Go see some people saved. Luke 19.10, that's our Lord's heart. So, Luke 19.1, excuse me. <clears throat> he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man call, uh, called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Remember, these guys were like the, the dregs of society. Um, proper society did not like tax collectors at all. So he was one of those and he was really good at it and he was rich. So he was not, probably not the most well-liked individual. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was, able, was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. That just means he was short. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to, that, uh, to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, we don't have all the details as to what was transpiring between these two individuals. Uh, you can't say for sure that this is all that they talked about. But at some point, Zacchaeus was absolutely saved. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And then here's our verse. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so we, again, we don't have all the details for Zacchaeus, but we have the details about our Lord's heart. And it's the same sort of battle cry that we began class with. We are in a battle for the souls of men. And this is the heart of Jesus who came to seek and save that which was lost. I want to share another pastor's perspective on this passage. I just happened to do some research. Um, this particular guy I tend to enjoy a lot when I'm looking for certain kinds of encouragement. Uh, uh, J. Vernon McGee and Through the Bible. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of commentary anymore, but um, I, like, I like the way this guy used to teach, and so I, I want to share it with you. This is his viewpoint on Luke 19, 1-10. By his fruit, I know he has been converted. This is about Zacchaeus. By his fruit, I know he has been converted. And friend, this is the only way the world will know that you are converted. They do not know, that's supposed to be they, they do not know it by testimony. They know it only by what they see in your life. If it were not for his changed life, I would never know that this old publican got converted. The experience of Zacchaeus is a good illustration of what James says. Ye, a man may say, Thou hast faith and I have works. Shew me thy faith. That should be shew. Autocorrect, probably. Shew me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. James 2.18 So he says Zacchaeus showed his faith by his works. He did not talk about his faith. He demonstrated it. 
The world is not listening for someone or something today. It is looking for something. You know, he's the same guy who said your actions speak so loud I don't hear a word you're saying. That was McGee as well. Uh, Zacchaeus had what the world is looking for. Jesus had dinner with him and his life changed. And that's okay. I don't, you know, I was reflecting on this. I don't, I just, I struggle with this a lot. I think some people are gun shy because they've been burned or something like that, or they were part of a religion and now they're gun shy. It's, oh, don't be legalistic. Some people were completely the other side, licentiousness, and people get confused. And it's just right there. I mean, it's just right there. Uh, if you're saved, you're going to bear fruit and people are likely to see it. That's all Jesus said. Why is it so difficult for some people to accept the simple fact that true faith produces fruit always? And why is it also so difficult to accept that such fruit will be made visible to others? Not always. We don't know the exact percentage, but we know what the Bible says. Unless said doubters are themselves uncomfortable with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that utterly changes a person. In other words, why would anybody have a problem with such things? Would say with what McGee just said. Why would, he, why, why would anybody have that problem unless they're uncomfortable with the true gospel of Jesus Christ? With the simple fact that a saved person is a changed person. I, don't, I mean, it's food for thought up here on the board. So as we go out with this sort of battle cry, evangelists, check your motivation. If you're going to go evangelize, check your motivation. The human emotion that all be saved. I mean, who here doesn't want everyone to be saved? Of course we do. The problem is we have to put a stopper on it. We have to make sure that it's not absent of certain criteria. The human emotion that all be saved is often different than God's in the sense that it is absent of divine viewpoint on justice. God's grace is not accommodating to man's sensibilities. Rather, it is accommodating to God's sovereignty. Again, that seems to be left out. It's almost like, well, since God's sovereignty is offensive to the, act, the average person nowadays, nobody talks about it. Nobody wants to talk about it in conjunction with the most important conversation you can ever have with another human being, which is the gospel. It's incredible. So the human emotion that all be saved is often different than God's in the sense that it is absent of divine viewpoint on justice. I mean, I've never met a Christian or even a so-called Christian, a proclaiming Christian, I don't even know if they're saved or not, who knows, that said, I don't want everybody to be saved unless they were being a punk. Of course you want everybody to, to be saved. The problem is it's not our salvation plan, it's God's. That's the problem with most people, with the gospel. They think it's their salvation plan. They hijack it. They don't have the conversation about God's sovereignty. So the point the Spirit's making here is simple. When we set out to evangelize someone, we ought to do it fully and correctly, and contrary to contemporary Christianity, without apology. Without apology. The conversation doesn't start with, do you want a free ticket to heaven or what? That's not the conversation, because salvation is not about a destination. It's about being set free from the bondage of sin. It's a problem of sin. 
being delivered from sin. That's why salvation and deliverance are interchangeable words even in the original. You're delivered from something. Going to heaven is not a deliverance, that's a destination. And so the conversation doesn't start with, do you want a free ticket to heaven or what? I mean, who in their right mind, even a rational person like the rich man who never got saved at that point, who just wanted a trip to it, to, or just wanted a ticket to eternal life, um, a rational person will even say, sure, because what's the alternative? Hell, oh, I definitely want to go to heaven. Give me, how do what I do to get that ticket? So the conversation doesn't start with, do you want a free ticket to heaven or what? Rather, it begins with, do you believe in the sovereign God of the universe? And are you righteous enough, as you are in your sins, to spend eternity with him? Do you believe that you're righteous enough to spend eternity with the sovereign God of the universe? As you are, as you're born, do you think that you are righteous enough, that you think you can be good enough? Or do you think you're totally depraved and you need a savior? That's how the conversation starts. Not, hey, do you think you're a sinner? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Do you think you're good enough? I do. Do you see, they can answer both. They can answer yes to both those questions. Do you think you're a sinner? And do you, do you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? If it makes me get to heaven, yeah, that's what I think. But there's no discussion about the depravity. There's no counting the cost even of what Jesus had to go through to save individuals. What about all that? What about the fact that God's justice had to be satisfied? A sovereign, just God. That justice can't get tossed away in the name of love or in the name of I want everybody to be saved or I want to accommodate everybody so I'll water down this gospel thing and lie to them. So the conversation should begin if it's not implied do you believe in the sovereign God of the universe? And are you righteous enough as you are in your sins to spend eternity with Him? God is immutable. A person will never concede God's sovereignty if they are their own God. Just think about that. I believe that's half the problem in conversion. Is most people never want to give up their own self. When Jesus said, you've got to deny yourself if you're going to follow me. You see, a person will never do that. They'll never concede God's sovereignty in the first place if they, they are their own God. And think about it. I was thinking about this, you know, um, driving in. Everybody wants to be their own God. Think about it. What are people really good at? I see, and I actually see pastors doing this now, which disgusts me. It's about um, using media to build a brand. You see? And they brand themselves. And they have, you know, they take like professional looking pictures, like, you know, and it's their banner on their website, or, you know, they got, you know, whatever they're doing, I don't know, they got giant screen. It's ridiculous. Books, you know, bigger than this, and it's just their face. What are we doing here? I mean, what are, what are we doing? Seriously. It's about branding themselves as a idol, as a little god, as a god. And most people don't. I mean, that's what our society's doing, isn't it? Be your own god. That's what we live in. And so most people don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to give that up. 
God is not interested in fitting into the confines of man's preferences for himself. He is immutable. He hasn't changed his mind. It's not, you know, 2017 now, get with the times, Pastor Ed. It's not like that. He's never changed. If he said, look, I'm sovereign. I have the right to kick your behind if I feel like it. I have the right to send you all to hell if I feel like it. But you know what? I didn't do that. I sent my son. But my requirements for salvation are my requirements, not yours. You don't get to muck with them. And it doesn't matter if Uncle Jimmy's really slow to the, you know, to the uptick. It doesn't matter if you're if your most loved person, cherished person on the planet is stuck in their own sort of issues, unwilling to surrender. You can't lie to anyone. God is immutable. Again, all that is just food for thought that came up this past week. And I wanted to share some thoughts that I had on it uh, over the course of this week. We have to change gears now. Um, getting back to our primary course of study. I want to kick this off with reading uh, John 13. Go to 13.1. John 13.1. So that's all food for thought, and it's good food for thought. Because if we're in a battle to save souls, and Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. Um, The vast majority of his parables were about salvation. I mean... Shouldn't we be uh, ratcheted into that uh, as our very purpose for a living? Of course. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. I want you to keep an eye as we read this chapter. I want you to keep an eye on the intimacy that exists in this in the scenes here. Very intimate. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. <clears throat> During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands <clears throat> and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, He girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So there's your introduction. Remember the first bullet in the framework was they lacked understanding. So here's another instance of that. What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet, Jesus answered him. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not... (laughs) He's such a goober. Then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. He's so funny. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. Obviously, he's talking about salvation there. And you are clean, but not all of you. He's pointing back to Judas. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Now, just pause for a second. Think of the intimacy. I mean, how, back in the day, you know, chamber pots and all that stuff, their feet were filthy. Sandals, chamber, chamber pots is where, you know, excrement and stuff like that was thrown out windows into the sea, and you'd walk in it, frankly, and you'd get it on your feet. So, um, you know, you kind of have to be pretty intimate with a person if you're going to be washing excrement off their body. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, that would be the equivalent of, you know, helping someone with a toilet nowadays or something like that. I, you just don't let anybody do that, unless you're weird. <laughs> but, I mean, some people are like, hey. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't recommend it. But you have to be pretty, right? You have to be very intimate with a person for this to transpire. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, come on. So he says, for I gave you an example now that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who sent great, the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That's an important thing. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Of course, this is pointing back to Judas again. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, <clears throat> and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter jested to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He leaned back, or he leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Then he answered, that is, for, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, 
even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. That's kind of what McGee was saying, right? You're going to know who his disciples are. Who said that? Jesus Christ said that. If you love one another, I mean, if someone's to walk into this church, not better yet, if some, from what I hear, I didn't, I didn't, you know, get all weird on you ladies, but if someone was to walk into the ladies' Bible study last night, are you going to tell me that they didn't see Christ evidenced? Where you guys sit here now or here, here? You, you, from what I understand, the fellowship is amazing. That the women were just, you know, totally filled but with the Spirit and totally just expressive of their love for one another and just the the presence of having a church like this where it's family. You're going to tell me that people wouldn't see that, the very love of Christ in their hearts, in, in their attitude towards one another? Of course they will. Of course they will. That's called fruit of the Spirit. What's the very first one listed? Love. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't happen. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. No, it happens. It happens. And he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So, if you are following along in the lessons as of late, you know that that passage, um, even though the context is specific, is chock full of much of what we've been studying. Chock full. Among countless things in this one chapter, one of the things that really pops out is the intimacy between Jesus and his apostles. Don't miss it. There was a very intimate time. Even the one who he knew was going to betray him was allowed very close to him. And that gave me pause to think as well. Even the one he knew was going to betray him was allowed very close to him. It's yet another sobering perspective we must consider in our own walks. Jesus allowed some of the most vile creatures very close to him. Hmm. This is the, excuse me, the same man who said this in Luke 6, 27, 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Darn it. But it's so much easier to love the ones that love us, right? But that's not the real test of faith. If our job is to go out to people who don't like Jesus Christ or don't know Jesus Christ, they're not going to be necessarily top on our list. You know what? They're not the ladies that are gathered around last night. They're the ones who might be even sort of, I don't know, flippant, complacent, I don't know, somewhere in the throes of being lost. So it's easy to love those who love us back. That's the easy route. But Jesus said, hey, listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I don't see that as the primary issue in John 13, but it's certainly there. Again, the greater issue being the intimacy 
I challenge you, go home tonight, read John 13 on your own and focus specifically on the intimacy in the chapter. It's, it's amazing. It's tremendous. I can only imagine the trust he was trying to engender in those he was teaching. Don't just trust me. Trust each other. If, if someone else is going to get down on their knee and clean the poop off your feet in the excrement, then, you, you know, doesn't that engender some trust? Of course it does. I can only imagine what he was trying to teach these individuals in terms of trust, which isn't, by the way, a whole lot unlike an under-shepherd even today. Uh, it's kind of hard to sit and listen to somebody if you don't trust them, trust their heart. Uh, I suppose this is critical, given the charter on both the shepherd and the sheep. Trust is always an issue. I remember years ago, someone told me, well, not years ago, but not that long ago, so, someone told me specifically, they said, you know what, Pastor, you, I trust you with my soul. That means you have the most important place in my life. I trust you with the welfare of my soul. And not that I can change someone's soul, not that I, but I certainly have influence over it. I certainly can lead you astray for a bit. I certainly can do a lot of things to hurt you, like some people do. And so it's critical. And this is what Jesus was saying. In the body, we should engender certain kinds of love, certain kinds of intimacy. That's why I don't, I'm not picking on huge churches, but I wonder how huge churches function. I mean, the pastor might not even know your name. They might have, like, see you and shake your hand or something. I don't know, but how do you shepherd somebody? How do you shepherd a sheep that you don't know? As far as I know, all the analogies of shepherds, they knew every sheep. And they tapped them as they came in the, the sheepfold at night. And they counted them, and they knew them, and they, you know, they would have a relationship with them. Not, you know what I'm saying? Like a, they knew their sheep. How does that happen with a church that has 50,000 people that 40,000 of them aren't even local? I don't know how that happens. It doesn't happen. As a shepherd, I can tell you that's impossible. You might get a really good teacher, but you're not going to get a shepherd. It can't happen. That's why I believe what the Bible teaches is uh, a bunch of small churches. That's what I see in the Bible. I don't see mega churches. I see a bunch of small churches. That's what I see for those reasons. But I'm digressing. All I see, though, and not all I see, but what I see in uh, that particular chapter is intimacy. And he was teaching on intimacy to others. So I suppose this is critical given the charter of the, both the shepherd and the sheep. We have been working our way through five obstacles the apostles faced that we can relate to personally up here on the board. We've already gone through, for the most part, the first bullet, which was that the apostles lacked understanding. Matthew 16, 15 to 23, Luke 18, 31 to 34, Acts 1, 1 to 9. In Luke 18, 34, after Jesus described his death, I love what the Spirit brought out through McDonald on this subject. We often understood none of these things. Uh, we didn't go there, but this is what Luke 18.34 says. It says, they understood none of these things. This is after Jesus described what was going to happen to him. And they understood none of it. <laughs> we often believe what we want to believe and resist the truth if it does not fit into our preconceived notions. 
To me, that's the hardest part about evangelizing someone. Is they have God all wrong because somebody's been lying to them about who God is. He's either this judgmental, maniacal beast, or he's this soft-footed female version only of the sovereign God. There's no balance. It's like one thing over here or one thing over there. And then you approach them with a balanced presentation of the gospel, the sovereignty of God. He's loving and just. They don't want it. And so people often believe what they want to believe, and they resist the truth if it does not fit into their preconceived notions. And so they were suffering this. This is what McDonald's was trying to say. He's saying their big thing was, hey, we got our Savior, right? We got the Messiah. We got the King for the kingdom because we're waiting for the kingdom. And now we have our king, so it's going to be like, yay, we're going to be part of it. It's going to happen. It was political as much as anything else even. But that wasn't the plan. But they didn't want to hear it. For him to die, they were kind of like, you can't die. I mean, how are you going to rule the kingdom? So in all fairness, though our misunderstandings, they're not always intentional. And let's be kind, or let's be right about this. The apostles, like many of you, were brought up a certain way. And when you hear the truth in the Word of God, I mean, in this case, the Word was speaking directly to them, but this is what we have now. When you hear the truth in the Word of God, it doesn't always conform to your preconceptions, and it takes you a while sometimes. You have to hear it a few times. You have to be maybe even stung, maybe disciplined. Maybe you have to suffer a little bit. Maybe you have to go without something. That's got your eyes here when they should be there. I don't know. So in all fairness, our misunderstandings are not always intentional, specifically speaking. In any case, we can laugh a little bit when we see the apostles not getting stuff because we can relate to them personally. I mean, look at Peter. He's all over the map. He, you know that he had a good heart. You know, that he, he, you know that he meant well. But he was mistaken. He, was, he misunderstood certain things. So his responses to certain situations was Peter-like. I mean, how else can you explain it? Foot-in-the-mouth guy, you know, race before think, speak before think type thing, or do before thinking. That was Peter. But yet he was the leader. So go figure. God can use anyone, right? You can be a very silent, I've taught this before, a very silent leader. You can technically be an obnoxious leader. And anything in between. If you're going to lead, this is what I've been telling Sean all these nights, like he's not here tonight, but lead with your own personality. Lead, for, lead the way that you are. Let the world see how God created you, and like it or lump it, be yourself. There's nothing worse than being a phony. So we can relate to these guys personally, and they're all different. Hence our efforts in this series in general. Let's grab the final passage on the topic of the apostles lacking understanding up here on the board. Go to uh, Acts 1.1. Acts 1.1. The same writer, Luke, penned the final passage we are considering regarding the apostles' apparent lack of spiritual understanding. Acts 1.1. So it's good. It's good to relax um, when you're learning this stuff and and be honest and understanding of yourself even that some of you have preconceptions that 
were sort of placed there by people that you trusted back earlier in your life. I don't know exactly what the circumstances are, but sometimes these things take undoing, and it takes time. Acts 1.1, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He's like, come on. (laughs) Come on, I'm trying to teach you here. You're not paying attention again. What are they doing? They won't let it go. They're white-knuckling the kingdom. The kingdom's still not here. Get it? I mean, well, the kingdom of heaven is, but, you know, the kingdom they were looking for, say, the millennial reign, it's still not here. So they were looking for something that isn't there yet. And they still didn't get it. And he's teaching them. He's literally, like, you know, saying, hey, look, I drew the line in the sand. You know, I've already gone and come back. I mean, come on. I already drew the line in the sand. I'm out here trying to teach you what the church is going to look like. This new organism, a new organism, right? And they're still like back here a little bit, saying, is this, oh, does this mean the kingdom's coming? (laughs) So I hope you see it. These are the apostles at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So think about that. At the very end of the ministry, they still didn't get it totally. So just before his ascension, they they are still confused. They They were still confused about the details of the coming kingdom on earth. So Jesus redirects them to the truth about the church organism, the one he has just trained them up to propagate. So it's kind of a, uh, you know, harrowing. If, you, if, if, if I was the Lord, of course I'm finite and stupid, but if I was the Lord, I'd be like, this is kind of harrowing. Dad, should you give me some more time down here? Because I'm like, right, I'm out of here, right? And they're still thinking the kingdom's coming. Yeah, you know, so he's trying to redirect them to the truth about the church organism, the one he just... He has just trained them up to propagate and that they ought not be preoccupied with their own preconceptions about how great the kingdom will be for them. There was plenty of work to do right then and there. And I think likewise we should think that way as well. There's plenty of work for us to do right now. I mean, who doesn't want to get raptured out of here like right now? Come on, right? I'm just like, oh, thank you, finally. But it's who knows? It could be, we could all die of natural causes before that happens. I hate to break it to you guys. It could totally be that way, right? And so what should we be focused on? What there is to do right now. We're not supposed to lay down and buy our time. That's not in the Bible. We're supposed to go out and reap harvest. We're supposed to go out save souls. We're supposed to go out to the ends of the earth even and bring the gospel, at least help somehow. We're supposed to do this thing. Could he return at any time? Sure. But we're supposed to live each day that way. And so that's what he was trying to train them to. He's saying, listen, there's plenty of work. The, the kingdom will come, and you'll be there. Cool, right? 
But there's plenty to work through right now. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the time, no times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, and that would have been mystery doctrine, nothing they would have expected from Old Testament scripture, in other words. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, there's a lot to do, you see. Stop worrying about the kingdom. Seriously, stop worrying. It's like when Peter, well, what about John? What about John? <laughs> Anyways. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So that finishes up our first bullet. That is that the apostles lacked understanding. Hopefully that's very evident at this point. Next we have, uh, they even lacked humility. Matthew 20, 20 and forward, and Mark 9, 33 to 35. This is an interesting point, humility, because we know from our previous lessons that the apostles at least had enough humility to follow Jesus. They had at least enough, just like we did. We had at least enough to be converted, at least some humility where our heart was evident and God, God uh, quickened our hearts and saved us, this whole thing. But we had at least enough that he had, was able to save us. But do we have all humility from salvation on? No. I mean, who here wants to raise their hand and say they have all humility right now? <laughs> so they lacked humility. And this is one thing that I have learned. Humility is something you learn. It sounds funny, right? It sounds like, well, I just got to, you know, na 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 be more humble. Like, you know, more humble. Mm, I'll think more humble. I'm going to be more humble. Right? And you're like, mm, no, be more humble. It doesn't work that way. He actually has to train you. Sometimes it's one of these. Well, if you're so arrogant, I got to punch you down to prove that your power is much less than mine. Or maybe he teaches you through another, maybe he teaches you through an example. I don't know. Maybe he teaches you through someone else's pain even. Maybe your spouse is in chronic illness or something. I don't know. Maybe he teaches you that way. Maybe he says, you see this right here? You see, you see me? You see my sovereign plan? I don't know how that affects each individual. But I'm saying the only, there's not only one route to training a person up in humility. It's not always... You know, discipline, discipline, discipline. I got to knock you down. Of course, there's, that's always there because the flesh is awful and outrageous. But there are other ways to train you up in humility. But one thing I have learned, it's a learned thing. You have to learn it. We, don't, we certainly don't come out of the womb humble. The world revolves around us, right? When we come out of the womb and some people never grow up and they're 50 years old and the world still revolves around them. So it's an interesting point because we know that they have humility to be saved, but not all humility after salvation. As Peter said up here on the board, Luke 18, 28, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. Well, that takes a certain amount of humility, doesn't it? I think so. But yet he was the same one who said, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right? <laughs> you know, don't wash just my feet, wash my whole body then. Who's he to tell Jesus that? Isn't that crazy? Jesus, you're wrong. Do more. <laughs> right? I'll never let that happen. So he obviously lacked humility. 
But he had enough to follow him. That was Jesus' calling, right? Follow me. And he did. And so he had at least enough. And we have to think that way, that you all, if you're saved, at least had enough somewhere along the line for God to give you, because God gives grace to the humble, saving faith. That he justified you on the works of the Lord, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff, that string of things that happened to salvation. That he changed you eternally. Gave you eternal life. Baptized you into union with his son, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff dwells you, empowers you. So you had enough for him to do that, but not all. So there seems to be what we can call gradations of humility in the Bible, which makes sense. Gradations. As there are gradations of humility among ourselves and even within ourselves, depending on the topic. Some, if you're fair, right? I mean, in some instances, you're like the, the, the pinnacle of humility. And other people are like, I can't believe how humble this person is. And then like you cross the street and you're the pinnacle of arrogance. Right? Right? I mean, somebody, you know, you're over there, you know, I don't know, evangelizing somebody in a park somewhere, and then someone cuts you off, and you're like, mm-hmm. you're like, wait a minute, what happened to that person? Right? They're all humble and doing this thing, and this one's like causing everybody in the vicinity to stumble because you got your Jesus Saves T-shirt on, and you're like, you know. So what is that? Go- what happened? Well, someone fronted me. Oh, I get it. You got that little chip on your shoulder. You were born with a chip, men. You were born with a chip on your shoulder, right? And someone went like this, what of it? And you lost everything. So there are gradations of humility in the Bible. So it makes sense, because there are gradations even within ourselves. So the Bible tells us the following up here on the board. It's an imperfect humility, and that's why we have to learn. While the apostles were humble enough to be saved, they lacked perfect humility afterwards. Like the rest of us, they had to continue to learn what true humility is in the spiritual life. I would argue that um, at salvation, the vast majority of individuals, and only God knows, thinks humility is, you know, aw shucks, toe in the sand, you know, aw shucks, you know, I'm going to, you know, just force myself, but God sees the heart, right? I'm going to force myself to be humble. I'm not talking about being subservient to the idea that you know, you do something for a bigger picture, that's what drives you, for, you know, for the joy set before you, that you're not, you know, uncomfortable, or, you know, you're kind of saying, hey, God, this kind of stinks, you know. Like Jesus said, if your will be done, take this cup from me, right? Even within the midst of the greatest thing in human history, he had that thing. It's okay to be that way, but we have to continue to learn what true humility is in the spiritual life in the sense that um, we don't have it right out of the gate. So this is an imperfect humility. While the apostles were humble enough to be saved, they lacked perfect humility afterwards. Like the rest of us, they had to continue to learn what true humility is in the spiritual life. Okay, let's go to our first reference scripture uh, with what time we got left. On this topic of humility and the fact that the apostles lacked it. Go to Matthew 20, 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. 
So the first thing we have to learn is that we learn what humility is. And it comes in different shades, and we have different shades of it amongst us. We have different levels of it within ourselves. Uh, we don't have it all at salvation. We have to be trained. So by grace, we, were prepared. we are prepared as well. Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. That's pretty funny, right? I mean, that's pretty funny. It's typical mom stuff, right? But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. Yeah, that's pretty funny. And he said to them, <laughs> My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those, uh, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, of course, right? Because they're all arrogant. I mean, even if Jesus Christ said, okay, cool, you can have it. Answered prayer. What right do the other ten have? Doesn't Jesus have the right to, or, well, he's saying his father, but doesn't God have the right, assuming Jesus had the right to tell him, to do whatever he wants with whomever he wants? Of course. So the whole group of them, it's, it's not just the ones that are, you know, putting their mom up to the job possibly. We don't know, but <laughs> just saying mom's there to the rescue, which is ridiculous. And then the other ones, they're all wrapped up in, a, in this problem called lack of humility. And one of the things we can glean from this is that we shouldn't be looking at somebody else. That's why Paul wrote an entire chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 on spiritual gifts. Why? Because guess what the flesh always does? Oh, oh, what do you got there? Oh, well, my gift's way better than yours, obviously. So since mine's better, I must be better. Right? Just saying. There's no good that ever comes in comparing. But what, is, what are we literally, literally trained up to do from the day we're born? Compare ourselves to one another. It's literally. And we do it to our own kids. It's ridiculous. Oh, I saw Susie's little girl at uh, kindergarten class. And she had a little pink bow in her hair, and she looked cuter than Betsy. So I'm going to get two pink bows and send Betsy to kindergarten and tell her, you're the prettiest girl in this whole class, Betsy. You go, girl. And the girl goes, you know, like little John Bonet, Ramsey, right? She's, right? And they're all, what do they do to the, that poor kid? They're telling this poor kid at a very young age, I'm going to write this book someday if he lets me, the messages we send our kids. They're telling this little girl, this little impressionable girl, but the best thing she has to offer, the thing that she should focus on, is impressing other people and being the prettiest or being whatever it is that they're pushing her to be. It's grotesque. It's utterly grotesque. I think that's why my mother sent me to school with tough skins to keep me humble. <laughs> One pair. Or bell-bottom, plaid, multicolored pants with turtlenecks, or a brass zipper. You know what I'm talking about? Good looking right there. 
good looking with a semi-fro, right? So I never really suffered that problem. Right? I mean, but some of you have. Some of you are still stuck in it, and you're 30, 40, 50, years, 60 years old maybe. You're still stuck in comparing yourself. Something you learned as a child. And something your flesh, of course, said, absolutely, especially if I can dominate. If I've got a skill, if I'm smarter than you, prettier than you, handsomer than you, faster than you, more athletic than you, whatever it is, I'm going to capitalize on this every day of my life. And the rest of the world says, absolutely. You should do that. And don't worry about the 10 indignant neighbors. You two just band together, get your piece of the pie, go live up on the hill, and, and, you know, play the game. When the whole thing is bad. The whole setup. Remember I wrote that blog on the two uh, baseball fields? Wrong baseball. You're on the wrong field. There's a winner and loser on the, on, the, on the wrong field. You know that, right? Satan's really smart. He says, there are winners and there are losers. But the entire ballpark is a bunch of losers. Wrong ballpark. Satan's really smart. And that's what's going on here. The flesh loves the game, the competitiveness, the looking over your shoulders. So this is why, verse 24, And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. What do they care? Honest to goodness, why would they even care? Shouldn't they be like totally focusing on, holy cow, like we gotta, we, time is short, we got to go get started here. No, they're not. I wonder which one of us is the greatest. Whoa, power play. Sending in the big guns, mom. Trying to secure a position in the kingdom. Wrong ballpark. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Servant. What did he teach them when he washed their feet? What did he want them to do? To serve each other. It's more blessed to give than receive. Give blessings. Serve one another. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That is what true humility looks like. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's humility. That's something we have to learn. That's something we have to learn. I mean, uh, most of the time when we, quote, serve somebody, there's always an ulterior motive. Even Especially, you watch a little kid, why are they helping the old lady cross the street so they can run back and tell somebody, I helped the old lady cross the street. I feel good about myself. It's about me. Do you understand? It's always about me, 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 me. It's about me. I do stuff so that I get certain approbation. I get to say, I did this thing. Not I brought glory to God. I did this thing, and therefore I brought glory to me. That's not serving. That's serving yourself. It's just 
manipulated. It's colored just the right way so that the majority of the world says, what a swell guy or what a swell gal. Look at all the good stuff she does for Jesus or he does for Jesus. When all they're really doing is doing it for themselves. Hmm. So that's why we have to learn what it even means to serve, what legitimate serving even looks like. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for humbling us, for teaching us what humility looks like truthfully. Thank you for scraping away all our own awful preconceptions about who you are, about the plan you've set aside for each one of us as individuals. Father, thank you for encouraging us with a living hope that extends into the eternal state even, Father. Thank you for not exacerbating us because that's what a father does not do. Thank you for challenging us just the same so that we might bring glory to you in time in whatever way possible as vessels, Father. We ask that we stand up tall and firm in the gospel whenever the gospel is called to the forefront through divine opportunities, Father, or divine appointments. We thank you for the tenacity and the perseverance to do that very thing. Maybe to win a soul, a new brother or sister in Christ. doesn't get any better than that, Father. Thank you. We do just ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.